<laughs> I thought about this actually before you came over here. I've known you for a bit. Yeah. And I have heard more names come out of your mouth of people that you've associated with that would like, <laughs> if people were listening, they would be blown. Like every, they know these names. Um, and these are people that you just kind of rub shoulders with on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. If I didn't know you to be a super uh, humble, genuine dude, I'd be like, this guy's name dropping. Crazy. <laughs> um, where does that come from? Like how, yeah. how does this happen? On today's episode of the Momentum Podcast, we welcome Peter Awood. Peter is the founder of grass-fed beef jerky company, Mission Meats. He is a brilliant operator and entrepreneur, someone who is quite skilled at solving problems both in his businesses and in the businesses and lives of other executives that he works with. He's also someone who I consider a close friend. He's become a close friend over the last several years, uh, someone who I'm lucky to have in my life. We talk about some of the challenges of operating a meat company during 2020 to, to now. It's no secret the cost of meat and other factors associated with running a business have drastically increased. Uh, we talked about how he discovered what he's truly gifted at and how you can potentially do that too. We talked about why documenting your behavior can change your life. Strategic questions to get to the root of what the problem that you're facing might be is and most importantly, how Peter seems to know every single human being on the planet. So without any further ado, let's jump right in to my conversation with Peter Awood. Check one, two. Check one, oh, two, there three, we go. four. That was that my sounds audio. <clears throat> sounds sultry. <laughs> how are you, man? I'm good, man. I'm good. We're just like coming out of a black cloud, dude. Yeah. Last year was hard, really hard. Um, so now just coming into this year feeling like you know stroke stuff's behind us with windsor and then um i feel like i'm finding my place in coaching mission meets is kind of on track for you know um it's good so when you say last year was hard is it is are you largely referring to the windsor deal or was there more that was kind of filtered into that oh yeah more um it's interesting dude because we moved so bought a house which i didn't think was going to happen and then so that's something that's fairly stressful huge commitment all that stuff but then yeah i mean you have 14 year old having a stroke and then that was two weeks before we moved and then just like the economics of the meat business just collapsed right so like production tanked uh, production quality went down but production costs went up raw material costs went up so just imagine and then you know cost you know cpas were cost for customer acquisition went up so just imagine for a moment if your business went from say say your customer acquisition cost doubled which is, these aren't exact numbers but they doubled and then the production cost for your product doubled and the quality went down a little bit it's like the economics turned upside down um so that was real interesting i think that like that's the real world MBA, right? Like it's where you like really learn like, okay, I've never gone through this before. Like total upheaval, a business model. What do you do? Lay people off, figure out how to survive and then thrive on the outside of that. So getting a lot of relief there. So it's really cool. Um, but yeah, man, hard year. Can you walk through, so Mission Meets, I'll probably chat about this a little bit on the intro, but can you walk through what Mission Meets is for, for the listener? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we're shelf-stable meat snack company. So we were doing grass-fed meat sticks before it was cool, right? Like, 
everything was conventional. I remember walking through the plant and them talking to them about no sugar inclusions. And they're like, oh, we don't do that. Like, what is that? We can't do no sugar. Like, we do put sugar in everything. No food coloring? What are you talking about? Right. So, yeah, I mean, shelf-stable meat snack, direct-to-consumer. So, we're not in any retail spots. Um, it's basically what it is. How did that happen? Because actually backing up a little bit, you've always been, from from what I know about you, mm-hmm. you your past, even before you launched Mission Meats, Grass-Fed Beef Jerky. Yeah. You were, you've always been kind of like entrepreneurial is an overused word, but yeah. that you've, that's been your tendency. What were you doing before yeah. Mission Meats? Um, <laughs> so I, I, yeah, I started working when I was seven years old. So like I've always been in business, um, always been intrigued by business. It's always been exciting to me. Um, and so my parents went to a grocery store. Like this, that's what I did. I worked in a grocery store since I was seven years old. Uh, went to an engineering school. During engineering school, started my first company. So that was e-commerce automotive parts. That was back in 2000. So I was like, you know, feels like an eternity ago. How old are you? 42. Okay. Yeah. So you know, I'm 20 years old, making a lot of money uh, for me then, and then graduated, and I was like, I'm not, I'm not taking a job. It's not for me. And so my parents thought I was like the biggest idiot ever. Like, dude, you got an engineering degree and you're not taking a, like, you're not going to take a position. I had a ton of job offers, um, but I was already making more money than I'd ever make it as an engineer. I'm like, no, I'm not doing this. Um, so yeah, so ran, ran that for a long time. Um, had a SaaS company that was like this, you know, never like a huge success. It was like a walking wounded sort of company as my mentor would call it. So it didn't die, but it didn't succeed. It was like a zombie. Um, so we ran that for years. Um, and then on a trip out here, uh, it's cause we used to visit every winter. I was reading, uh, the book bold by Peter Diamandis. And in there was like a little snippet, like it wasn't even like a big chapter. Just talking about baking a mission into the ethos of your company, like from the start. Um, and so I was like, oh, that's interesting. And around that same time, my buddy was selling his grass-fed beef business. And so he sold it. And I had had some, like, just, you know, some knowledge from how he operated. And fast forward, I meet my you know, now co-founder, Nick, and he's got all this supply chain experience. I don't know anything about meat. You know, I'm like a, you know, auto parts guy with an engineering degree. What do I know about meat production? Um, and so him and I team up and that's, that's it, man. And that was 2015. Yeah. So you were, were, you were married at the time you and Melissa were married. Yeah. We've been married for a long time, dude. We've been married, uh, almost 19 years. What was that like? Was there a, did, was there a big feeling of risk starting a new venture or was it kind of like, look, I've done this so many times. I've always kind of had my hands somewhere. It's funny, dude, because we'll talk about the coaching business, right? Which is the newest sort of endeavor for me. I don't think about it. And I don't know if that's like some weird defect in my operating system. I just don't think about it. it I, I'm not like, it doesn't scare me. I don't think about, like, I don't think that I should be scared. Um, I just do it. Um, it's not, there's no ego in that statement at all. Like, I don't even think about it. I'm like, oh, this looks like a cool idea. I think we'll try it. And then we just do it. And so I'm 42 now starting a new career, right? And uh, and 
our mutual friend, um, he stopped me the other day on the sidewalk. He's like, dude, you got like huge balls of steel for start. Like you're 42, bro. Like you're no spring chicken starting a new business. I've never, I don't know. I just don't even think about it. I always wonder that stuff is very interesting to me. And actually the engineering portion is interesting because Mm -hmm. I almost see when you observe how certain entrepreneurs act and the way they move themselves in the world, it's almost like, and not all of them are like this, but some of them, it feels like they, there's not an element. It's almost an element of naivete, like what you were saying, like you don't even think about it. Mm but it's just some people have the the skill to pull it off. Yeah. And I wonder if there are a lot of people out there that maybe have the skill to pull it off, but they don't have that element of, it's almost a game mm-hmm. or, or there's some element of just not overthinking that leads to you taking the action, um, which is, you know, it's a, it's a, a balancing act because if you're the person who doesn't have, you know, what it, what it takes to pull it off, um, potentially you're entering into, into some risk. Um, but I, I wonder, like, can you, well, can you isolate where that comes from at all? Like where the level of assurance comes from? So there's a, um, assessment called caliper, which I, we taken some employees through and myself and my co-founder went through it. It's pretty in depth. And, um, one of the characteristics it measures for is risk tolerance. And I've got a 97. Um, 99 is as far as it goes. And so I've got like off the charts risk tolerance, but I also have a lack of attention to detail. And I think that's good and bad, right? Like, so when you have, when you lack attention to detail, you're like, Oh, looks good. High risk tolerance. Let's go for it. But you got to pair that with some sort of governor or throttle, whatever, you know, analogy you want to use someone who's going to check you and say, okay. And, and, I'm not equating myself to Branson at all, but um, I remember meeting his co-founder and he talked about how Branson's a yes man and he's surrounded by yes and. And so he's got people around him. They're like, yeah, great idea. And we need to think about X, Y, and Z and we're going to go figure those things out. And so just surrounded by those sorts of people. And so Melissa, my wife, for sure, she checks me on stuff. Um, And then I've learned over the years to like take an idea let it percolate like don't just don't just jump on it and then usually there are questions that come up like okay hmm, maybe i haven't really thought about this who do i know that can dot the i's and cross the t's on this because i'm not going to um because i'm not good at it and i acknowledge that but i need to be surrounded by people that can do that for me and so if you're familiar with um eos or traction which is like you know entrepreneurial operating system people use to like operate their businesses in the terminology, and there's a book called Rocket Fuel that talks about this. The dynamic duo is the visionary and the integrator. The visionary is going to be future-oriented. They're going to see things, and they're going to be excited about them. And the integrator is actually going to be able to take that and see it through. And those are two typically very different people. Um, I have had to operate in kind of both of those seats typically, Um, and I think my engineering mind helps me with that. Um, but it's not where I like to sit and it's not where I'm like, it doesn't bring me energy. Like if I sit in the integrator seat too long, I get pretty depressed and like beaten down. Um, and so I think that like being surrounded, like having Melissa and then other teammates and my co-founder, like you can work together to, in order to have that risk tolerance, but then have it tempered a little bit. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but like that's, 
to me, um, paired with just this immigrant mentality of like, you just, you kind of have no choice. Like you got to get it done. And so my, my dad came here with 500 bucks and the clothes on his back. And then my mom, you know, came to the States when she was 19 and neither one of them spoke very much English and they just had, they had no choice. It's like, just, you just get it done, right? You work three jobs, 20 hours a day, whatever you need to do. Um, so I think that's been definitely instilled in me. It's like, you don't really stop to think cause you can't afford to, you just do it. Um, so that bias for action, I think helps too. So you grew up in a lower, your, your parents didn't have much when you were growing up in um, the early days. I didn't experience as much of the poverty. Um, I was so second born and, um, when I was three, they moved from Cleveland to Florida. So that's where I grew up. And when they moved there, they bought a grocery store. And, um, so I never, I mean, we, we were middle class, um, at that time. And so I, we never like had a ton of money, but we weren't poor by any means. Um, but we lived like we had to work. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So I don't know if you ever watch, uh, Sebastian Maniscalco, the comedian, but he's, it's like the funniest thing. Aren't you embarrassed? This is his best, um, up bit, his comedy special. And he just talks about living like immigrant mentality. And it was like, you just worked like that was just you that was just understood like I started my first business mowing grass when I was 10 years old you know um that that was just what you did I didn't never really thought about it like I got caught selling candy in the hallways in middle school um and that's just it was just what you did I think that clear obviously that clearly shaped you like you know some some people choose to go one of two directions it's wild when you hear the stories of like somebody that grew up in a household like that and they kind of went the other direction. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's a little bit less common. I think that would, would have shaped you. And I, back to the engineering piece in college, yeah. um, I, I, one of the podcast episodes I did was with Josh Clemente. He's a, a founder of a company that does glucose monitoring, like a CGM patch. Mm-hmm. He's an engineer. Um, and we talked a little bit about thinking like an engineer. And the last episode I did with Ryan Warmick, he's more on the artist side, but he talked about how like, if he can pull from, pull a little bit of that engineering side into the equation, uh, it helps get things done. Um, Like you were mentioning, there's like the visionary and the integrator. I think it's great when you, like you've built mission meets to a point, a point where you can have the integrator and integrators, like multiple people under you, um, alongside you. But a lot of times when people are starting out, they don't have, like, they've got to be the visionary and the integrator. So I'm curious if there's anything that you've, you know, and maybe you just got into engineering because that's just how you're cognitively wired a little bit. But is there anything that you pulled from like thinking like an engineer and operating like an engineer that helps you kind of get tasks done and like put things into a a process and, and move it from A to Z? Yeah. Uh, for sure, naturally, just in that direction, like I, I think sort of linearly, um, and it's kind of weird, you know, mix of that plus vision. Um, so I feel like I'm a little bit odd, but um, here's the thing about that. And just step back and think about artists with engineer, like trying to have the engineering tendency and vice versa. Um, there's a tool that we teach in coaching called the 7030 the reason it's important is because I have frequently overcorrected in life where it's like, oh man, I've been, my head's in the clouds too much. I got to like buckle down and like get things done. 
And so I'll just like get my head completely out of the clouds and I'll just be getting things done for a long time. And then I'll find myself miserable and I've been overly productive and now I'm lacking vision. And I'm like, Oh crap. And then I'll overcorrect the other one. I keep bouncing back and forth and I'll feel bad for it the whole time. The 70, 30 there, what's what is important about it is like, it's a healthy mix between unconscious competence and conscious competence. Um, and, I'll define those real quick. So conscious competence is something that you have been, you've trained yourself to be competent in, something you've trained yourself to be good at. Unconscious competence is stuff that just, it just comes to you easily. Like you don't even think about it. You just do it. The healthy mix is 70, 30 of that. 70 unconscious, 30 conscious. Now, why do I even bring that up? It's because it helps you to understand and to categorize and put, terminology to what you're doing and the activity you're doing and why you're doing it. So what do I mean by that? If you're an artist, well, dude, you need to be spending 70% of your day just doing artist stuff, right? Painting, drawing, whatever it is that you do, photography. And then you switch gears and spend 30% of your day on the tactical stuff. Like you're an artist, well, you need customers. You might need marketing. Maybe you got to do some bookkeeping. And if you're a one-man band, like you're talking about, you don't have an integrator. Well, then you've got to put that hat on and spend 30% of your day doing that. And that's the healthy mix. Why is it the healthy mix? Because the business needs it. They need both of you. 70% your genius work, if you want to call it that. 30% the necessary. Um, but the other reason it's important is because that 30% is what grows you. And it teaches you to do the hard things because they're necessary. Even if you don't like them, or they're not natural to you. That's where you're going to get a lot of growth. And I like it because when I'm doing things I don't want to do, I just tell myself, like, this is my 30. And then it gives you that, like, latitude to be like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm not going to do it all damn day. I'm not going to do it all week, but it's necessary. I'm going to do it. It's the necessary work, right? Um, and then it gives you the opportunity to then spend your 70% of your genius work. Now, what happens is, is typically you overcorrect and you'll go 95.5. Or 99.1 or 100% artist and then your business goes to crap and you're like, I got a lot of art, but nobody wants to buy this junk, right? Or I shouldn't call it junk. Or you're doing all of like the marketing and the bookkeeping and all that, but you haven't spent any time doing your artwork and now you're miserable and you don't have a, you don't have a portfolio to show for it. So that 70-30, I think is a healthy mix, especially for like the solopreneur to just know like, man, I got to spend, I got to spend some time in my, in my, my conscious competence and building that conscious competence. Yeah, the the 70 30 thing's interesting because like it's probably a good ratio and it's like whatever, 68 whatever, 22 my math is horrendous right now. Um <laughs> 32. <laughs> there we go. So I'm going to have to cut that part out. Um <laughs> but that's where I think structure is really helpful because like I noticed I'm I'm in in a very similar spot where um there's obviously things that I have to do that I don't want to do at all. And, but there's also things that I need to do that really drive the business forward, the, the, the stuff that I'm working on and that's, that drive the podcast forward. And those are the things when I, if you look and go, okay, what's going to move the needle the most? And you sort of have an awareness of those things ranked out. Um, and what I noticed is when I started categorizing my schedule hmm. and like, okay, these are the things that are going to move the needle the most in my professional life. And, and I would look at my blocks of time. And it represented like 5%, you know, I'm like, oh, a creative block is what I'm supposed to be producing content. That's going to be this content machine. That's going to grow the business and all this stuff. 
and I have 5% of my time this week allocated to that. Yeah. I'm wondering why nothing's happening. That's right. So I like, I get, I get kind of nerded out on productivity and, and efficiency and all that. But I think for you are kind of an interesting person to talk to about this yeah. because you run, you've run historically mission meets remotely. Is that mm -hmm. accurate? Yeah. And how many employees were you guys at, at the, at the peak? Oh, it's funny because we're super lean. Dude. You've always been a lean team. Super you lean. You so, don't need that many, right? I no. Mean, so we had two employees and everybody else is contractors. So like contract programmer, uh, three co-packers, uh, contract warehouse with contract workers. And so I mean, there's probably hundreds of people touching the product. Yeah. Only like four of us on payroll. Yeah. Yeah. But always run it lean. But the thing is, man, and I'm realizing I didn't fully answer your question. To your point and to your example, if you audit your calendar and you look at what moves the needle, a lot of times you're filling it with stuff that's distracting, that feels like productive work, but it's not. So I just had this conversation with a friend of mine in our Friday morning Bible study. He was talking about how he didn't have, he wasn't making rent. So I asked him, I go, well, dude, what, like, what pays the rent? Like, what do you, how do you make money? He's like, oh, it's just one activity. And I'm like, yeah, but okay. So that's the one activity that makes you, what about all the other things you've mentioned? Like he's coaching, he's doing all this other stuff. What do you, he's like, oh, those are, those are fun. I like doing them. Oh yeah, but they're not paying your bills. How much time are you spending doing the productive thing that pays your bills? He's like, well, not that much. How much time are you spending actually building, <laughs> building your client base for this business? He's like, I'm not, I don't, they're all inbound. And it's crazy. Because the same person is complaining about not making rent and he's not sure what he's supposed to do. But it's right in front of his face. And so a lot of that is that we don't want to do the hard things. That's probably his 30. His 30 is actually going out and knocking on doors for this business. He doesn't want to do it. So what is he doing? He's filling it with time of things that he enjoys doing. Which is not okay. Yeah. When you can't make rent and you got a family and you got bills to pay, right? And so... The old motivational sp speaker, Zig Ziglar, he used to say, he's like, money's not that important. But it's relatively close to air. When you don't have it, you miss it. Right? And so, like, when you're below break even, it's everything. And so, for this guy who's a creative, my encouragement to him was, like, you don't have to quit those things. You just, you can trick yourself and just say that you're taking a break. It's just not no forever. It's just not now. And just tell yourself, I'm taking a break. I'm going to take a six-month break. I'm going to put my head down and focus on this. And the gift to him is that if you can get above break even and you can start to breathe again, then that's the time where you're going to be most creative, right? You can't be creative when you can't buy groceries, right? And so it's like you're, you're actually literally stifling your creativity and choking it out yourself. Nobody's doing that but you. Yeah. It's like the only way to know what you're actually doing is to document it. It's the same thing with nutrition. Like I've, the amount of people that I've talked to that have said, it's just not working. Like I tried X, I tried dieting. It didn't work. I'm like, so you defy physics. Like, you know, it's not working for me. It's like, it, but I always say, can you literally track every single thing you eat for a week? And it's usually like, they are trying like it'll be like most of the time I, I get up and I eat X, Y, and Z and I do this. And so it actually feels like you're, you're expending a lot of energy to get something done or to like move the needle, get in better shape. But 
when you actually get into like high specificity, you realize, oh yeah, those um, nuts that I eat like five times a day, those bags of nuts, that's 1200 calories and, and it starts to add up and you, so just like clarity, I think this like documenting, it's probably useful to like document everything you do for a week. Yeah. Document, allocate, look at your screen time on your phone, like the different apps, like what are you doing? Um, that stuff adds up. Yeah. And we lie to ourselves, man. Like we're our biggest deceiver. And the thing is, is that you, you feel like you're doing a lot and there's a lot of noise and, you know, fireworks or whatever you want to call it. Like I feel like things are happening, but it's just like people that say that their family is the most priority, like they're most important. Like family is my priority. Like, really? Let's look at your calendar. Like what, what, what are you scheduling for family time? When was the last time you took your wife on a date? I'm guilty of this too, just as anybody else. When was the last time you carved out like a morning date with your kid, morning breakfast? When was the last time you cut out of work early? And you look at your their schedule and it's like, no, dude, your family's not your priority. Your work's your priority. Busy work's your priority. Your friends are your priority. Your me time's priority. And so like you audit your calendar and then it's like you can't hide from it. You, same thing for your diet. Like you can't hide from it. Like did you put it in your mouth or not? Did you eat it? <laughs> did you actually go to the gym? Like let's see the log. And it's not documented because it's scary and you don't want to know. Brief pause. Peter and I got into a topic around some of the businesses that he operates. And some of what we discussed is currently confidential. Um, so that portion will be cut out. But let's jump right back in to the chat. And it's fairly confidential. So okay. you might want to cut it out. But it's like, you know, Mission Meets for, for me um, has been a fun project. And... Um, over the last several years, I've been on this journey to figure out like, what am I actually supposed to be doing? And, um, I've always felt a little bit of a mismatch because, um, the thing that's scary about life is you find yourself in a place and sometimes it's just by accident. It's like a few collisions with a few different people. And before you know it, you're on this trajectory to be an engineer or a marketer or an artist or whatever it is. Um, and uh, some of that's divine and some of that is just like, I think just accidental and not paying attention to life's clues. Right. And, um, for me, I ended up in e-com by accident, um, ended up being good at it by accident. And then, um, and then, you know, moving on to mission meets and doing e-com there and a bunch of other businesses in between. But, um, I've always felt a little bit of a mismatch. Like I'm not, I don't know, man, something feels wrong here. And so a few years ago, hired a coach and we worked, you know, you know, halfway through COVID just trying to pick apart um, what it was that made me me, what made me tick, right? You call it your life compass. And it was being steered by a phrase that my buddy Zach said to me a long time ago. And he was a dude that was head of product at Zappos, Tony Shea's right hand man for a long time. Just an incredible dude. And I was lamenting with him one time just about like purpose and stuff like that. And he's like, oh man, simple. Three simple questions. What are your superpowers? What do you want the work to look like? And what do you want the incentives to be? If you can answer those three questions, you'll, you'll figure out where you're supposed to be going. He's like, they're not easy though. And so during that life compass that my goal was to answer the first one, like what are my superpowers? Like what did God put me on this earth to do? And um, we teased out three traits. 
which after we teased them out, I was like depressed for like three weeks. Um, it was that I could see A to B very quickly. Pull it a little closer to you there. Yeah. I could see A to B really quickly. Yeah. I'm like insatiably curious and I just connect with people deeply, very, very quickly. And, um, and Mike's like, what are you depressed for? I'm like, these are not marketable traits. Like, what do you do with this crap? Like, this is like, I feel like I'm like the dude on office space. It's like, you know, when they're asking them, so you take the paper downstairs? Like, no, I don't do that. My assistant does, but I'm a people person, right? Like, what do I do with this crap? And, um, he's like, oh, you don't need to figure it out. Like, those are your superpowers. Now you can work on the next part, which is what you want the work to look like. And, um, so I just kind of put that on the shelf, man, and just kind of waited for clues as to the direction and where I could use these traits. And I'm at a mastermind in Austin and half the guys there are coaches and like I'm hearing about their business and we're hot seating them, like just picking their businesses apart. And it was post that trip where I'm like, oh, I'm a freaking coach. Like I didn't even realize. And then I start, I made a list of what I call champions, which are just people that I think that could be in my corner, either as support or as potential clients or, you know, can be referrals or whatever affiliates. And almost all of them were like, yeah, of course, it's you. I'm like, what do you mean? They're like, you've been coaching me since I met you. I'm like, no, I haven't. We've been friends. He's like, no, you've been coaching me. And I just kept having that conversation over and over and over again. Um, So this is the journey I've been on now is just figuring out like, okay, what does Peter as a coach look like? And fast forward to just like a few months ago, I partnered up with a company called giant. They've been around 20 years. Um, they have like 850 or so now guides. They call the coaches guides that just utilize their operating system as a base layer to their business. And, um, and it's been incredible dude, because to, to, be paying attention enough and to also be patient enough to not feel like you need to figure everything out. It's been such a gift because now it's like, okay, superpowers. Now I'm figuring out what the work looks like and I didn't force it. Like I just kept just like picking it apart and I explained it as like you're groping around in the dark. I think I, f- I found the light switch and it's, and I got the dimmer up to like 5%. Like I'm starting to see where this is going to go. And it's so freaking cool, man. And um, when you're auditing and paying attention and measuring and understanding what makes a good day versus a bad day, and you start surrounding yourself with people that are also thinking deeply about life and they're not just wandering aimlessly and they have different perspectives and different experiences, um, you all help each other to become the person you're supposed to be to be on the right bus in the right seat going to the right place. Um, and I think it's just so contrary to what past generations have lived, right? They're like, oh, what makes the most money? I don't know. Nurse, engineer, okay, this is what you do. And then you just sit in that seat and you process paperwork or patience until you die um, or until you retire. And that was fine and necessary, but I think now we have the opportunity to like really lean in and pay attention and measure and we have the opportunity now um, to like really like get in the lane you're supposed to be in. How did you practically discover these three kind of strengths of yours? Because mm-hmm. I think a lot of people, they're like, I, th- I think I'm good at this, but it's, it, there's not a lot of clarity on what they're actually good at. Yeah. How did you do that? 
Well, it's through my buddies, his specific program that he built. And it's really, it's about like, um, outlining the story and the fundamental and important life events of the past. And then what made those special, um, and going through this process that he took me through for six months, but that was just his way. I think that, um, like through giant and there's lots of other programs too, you can go through assessments where you start to discover who you are and putting terminology to it. Right. So, um, one of the assessments we have is called the five voices and everybody's got these five voices. So it's pioneer, uh, connector, guardian, creative, and nurturer. We all have them and they're all, you know, everybody's got like little different orders. And, um, so I came out as pioneer connector and pioneer connector is someone is actually a kind of a complicated personality where, um, they're thinking in the future. They love people, but they also love envisioning and the future and um, just plowing ahead, right? That's cool. I'm like, all right, this totally suits me. But what also was very interesting is I put terminology and a vocabulary to a uh, traits that were positive and negative. Um, And so like for me, um, my triggers are perceived incompetence, people threatening my vision and time wasters. And I read that and I started laughing because I'm like, yeah, those are the most annoying people to me. Like, I hate those people. And um, and then they have another terminology called your your weapon system, which is what you deploy when you're triggered. And mine's a grenade launcher. I'm like, that sounds about accurate. I'm like, I, just, I will eviscerate Just blow you. it all up at one I blow time. blow everything up. But what's cool about it is it's like um, you don't wear it as a badge of honor. It's more like, okay, these are the types of situations where I am going to not be my best self. And... You under, and you recognize this as perceived incompetence, not incompetence. So if I see someone and I'm like, oh, that person's an idiot. Like, that's it. I'm going to blow you up or I'm not going to listen to you. or I'm going to just like disregard everything you're saying. Not a great trait. Um, and at the same time, help you understand like my fourth voice is guardian, right? Guardians are people who like to dot their I's and cross their T's. Typically don't get along with those people. Extremely necessary though, because... Their present voice, I'm future voice. They're thinking about getting the job done tactically. And I'm thinking about view, vision and plowing forward and I'm working on the next idea. Without the guardians, you're getting nothing done. And it's, if you get it done, it's not going to get done well or not get done at all. And so knowing that someone that is my counterpart is a guardian, right? Or if my wife was a guardian, she's not. But if, if, you know, if it's a guardian, then I know that when I present an idea, it needs to be flushed out. And I know they're not actually threatening my vision, which is a trigger. They actually wanted to support it. And they're like, Peter's got an idea. I need to make sure it's flushed out so we can make sure it's, it's, it's a success, right? And so like having those sorts of things helps you understand yourself better to answer your question, but it helps you understand other people better. And then you become a more effective leader. And I actually get to pioneer things because now I don't see the garden guardian as my nemesis, right? I don't see nurturers, which are 43% of the population as nemesis. Um, just because they're soft-spoken and they don't share their ideas, that's just part of who they are. They've got good ideas in there. Don't disregard them. Let them speak first, that sort of thing. And so I think that, you know, going through assessments and self-discovery and being willing to be wrong or not great at everything or understanding the shadow of your strengths, which everybody's got a shadow, uh, it helps you to understand what lane you're supposed to be in. And then once you understand that and come to terms with it, start building some conscious competence, then the opportunities start to present itself. You know, it's like once you realize that you really like that red Jeep, you start seeing red Jeeps everywhere. 
And you think all of a sudden everybody just bought red Jeeps. They've been there the whole time. It's just now you're aware of them. Self-awareness is the same thing. And so when I teased out superpowers, it wasn't very much longer afterwards where I was like, oh, coaching. Oh, my gosh. And all of a sudden I realized, like, I know a ton of coaches. Well, they were coaches before I discovered I wanted to be a coach. They've always been there. It just wasn't on my radar. And it's so crazy because after talking to everybody, they're like, you've been coaching me forever. How did I not see it? It's because I didn't even know that was a profession that was a, like a door that was open to me or could have been opened. And so it's that, that I think, you know, to answer your question, man, is like if you, you got to be open and you got to be seeking. Otherwise, it will never be made known to you. Yeah, it sounds like you interestingly took kind of the indirect route to get to what you actually want to be doing. Like a lot of people are like, I don't, I need to figure out what it is that I want to do with my life, which mm -hmm. is maybe a whole separate topic of like, should you, you know, do that or, or, or should you just kind of put your nose to the grindstone and start doing something? Mm -hmm. um, but you, instead of thinking, what am I supposed to do? Because like you said, you probably wouldn't have landed on coaching if you just thought about your next move. No. But you thought about, you dug deep into your specific strengths and weaknesses and that sort of led you to the conclusion. Is that accurate? Super accurate and uh, necessary. Because the thing is, man, is like, you know, when you want to be a hammer, like everything's a nail. And instead it's like, I don't know if I'm a hammer. Maybe I'm pliers. Maybe I'm jack. I don't know what I am, you know? And so like figuring that out first was to me the ultimate um, self-discovery process because that's the why behind it, right? Um, I think that people take the other approach, which like what's going to make money um, or what looks glamorous or what are my friends doing, you know? And those are not interesting questions. They're completely irrelevant to you. And they're not, they're not the right motivators, you know? Um, and I don't want to like minimize like necessity, right? So like you think about the majority of immigrants or like, I always say the joke, like we owned a gas station in Florida. It wasn't a gas station, it was a grocery store, but, and how like, yeah, most Indians and Egyptian Arabs in Florida own gas stations, right? Um, I always make that joke and people don't like it. And I, I'm like, I get to say it because I you live can. it. <laughs> I can. Um, and it's like, why is that true? Because it's freaking hard work. It is really hard work. And who's going to do it? But the people that are like, dude, I'm, I don't, I'm put the work in. They didn't care about their purpose. They just need to pay the bills. And so I don't want to minimize that. Like if you got to make the bills, you got to pay the bills, man, go dig ditches, whatever you need to do. Uh, if I if I found myself in a situation, I'd like throw purpose out the window and I'd be digging ditches or whatever I needed to do. Um, but above that um, or beside that, if you have the opportunity, you got to be asking the deeper questions of like, well, what did why did God put me here? What am I supposed to be doing? And go through that self discovery process and see if it aligns with a profession that you can actually support yourself with. Um, and the reason I have say that last line is like. Um, Derek Sivers, who started CD Baby, and he's just a really interesting guy. Um, I've gotten to chat with him several times, and he has this article about, um, I think it's called Balance, and basically how you don't necessarily need to make your business your art or your art your business. Some people's superpowers just don't align with something that can pay the bills, and that's totally fine. And his whole, his whole thought process is, he's like, I know a lot of business people making tons of money. 
And they just want to quit and they want to do art all day. And I know a lot of artists that are making no money and they just want to quit and get in the business so they can make some money. He's like, so you don't need, they don't need to be the same. You can look at your business as just being the financier or the, the investor of your philanthropy. And they can, you can just do them both and they can be siloed and that's totally fine. You can the mo- be the most amazing CPA with a huge firm, making a ton of money and then just go volunteer on the weekends and give it all away. That's totally fine. You have, it's a, you have a choice to either kind of in perpetuity, try to figure out what you're going to do. Um, or you could just start something. You know, and I was just having a conversation with, with a buddy and I was asking him because he, he's been in the same role for a long time and I was like ask, asking him how he likes his job. And he's like, you know what? I actually really like it. You know, I think he was mentioning a book. I don't know what book it was, but that talks about how a lot of people like to switch from opportunity to opportunity because they're trying to find their thing. Mm. And when in reality, a lot of times, you know, sometimes somebody just has a thing like for you, coaching is probably that thing. Um, but a lot of times the longer we do something, we get good at it and improving in something is what actually leads us to be fulfilled. I think in a lot of cases or feel happy. Um, so kind of sticking with something, either that or what you're saying, where you just do something potentially, maybe not everybody, um, but that leads to economic well-being, and then on the side, you can do whatever else you want to do. It's not a bad, it's better than sitting around and waiting. No. There are much worse options than that. Yeah. I'm curious what, cause you said one of your, cause I want to get into the coaching piece now and kind of pick your brain apart a little bit. You mentioned, you know, one of your, your strengths is the ability to connect A to B. I'm tracking with what you're saying, but could you define it a little bit yeah. of like how, how you do that? Yeah. Um, this is where I think I'm like a, a kind of a weirdo because um, I think it's this mix between the pioneer and the connector. And actually, um, my, uh, my engineering background. And so like I connect with people deeply and I've never fully understood why, but like I connect with people, I make friends everywhere and it's just, it's awesome. It's really fun for me. Um, it brings me energy, but I also like to envision the future and what's possible and ideate and all that stuff. But that paired with engin- like my engineering mind and then all the business background, for whatever reason, man, somebody can come to me with, an, with a problem and I have to stop myself from being like, oh, I know exactly what you need to do. Because sometimes it's wrong, but also what's really, really wrong is it needs to be their idea, not mine. And they don't get to learn if I just like provide them with a solution. And so um, the trainings that I'm taking people through right now, it's called Altitude. And the idea is it's like climbing a mountain and that you become the Sherpa. And the reason they use that analogy is like a Sherpa gets, they are acclimated to a higher altitude, right? And they know the path. They've got the tools to get there. They've got the skill set. They just, they know the terrain. They know all this stuff. And the Sherpa is then going to guide these, this group up and get them acclimated, right? And if he does his job well, he will, improve his skill set and at the same time help them improve theirs and they could become Sherpas. And so um, for me, being able to see A to B and pairing that with becoming with being a coach, um, my job is to then be like just 
to, through inquiry, asking questions and be like, Stephen, dude, so how did, how, how did this happen? What does it feel like when you're there? What are some examples of when it's, when it is working versus when it isn't? Why do you think that is? And asking those questions and leading them down a path, um, where I feel like I've already arrived there for, for whatever reason, very, very quickly, intuitively, um, then guiding them there and helping them see the solution. Um, so I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah, it's a, it's hard because I feel like when you're consulting or solving problems for somebody, I think sometimes people will hear, you know, somebody who's, you know, a guru or something, you know, a business, you know, type consultant, and they'll hear, how do you have, like, you're getting presented such unique problems. Everybody's problem is so uniquely different. How do you come up with a uh, solution so quickly? And I think a lot of times it's like, whoever's giving the advice usually has just a couple North stars that they're trying to point people towards. And it becomes very easy when you think systematically to go, I just need to identify what's in between them and that North star. Do you pull from a similar, I guess, thread? Like, do you have a few things that you constantly notice that you're directing? Ah, this is the hurdle that's between this person and where they're trying to go. Yeah. Um, I don't, that's a good, really great question. I don't know if it's like a, if there's a common thread, but I, um, similar to the discovery process of like, you know, becoming a coach for me, I usually start with why, right? So like, um, if there's a, an issue with an employee or a product line or production or whatever, it's like, why are we doing this to begin with? Like, why, why are we even working on this? Can you tell me about that? Like, what, why is this even here? Why is this a thing? Um, and picking that apart. But a lot of times I think that it's the, it's almost the nonverbals, man. Like when you're talking to somebody and you can see it's like bringing them a ton of stress, but the problem makes no sense or it really doesn't seem like it's that big a deal. Um, a lot of times it's like, wait, so what's going on here? Like on the surface, it feels like nothing. I don't, I don't even, why are we even talking about this? Like what's actually going on and almost always it's like something totally different this is just the straw that broke the camel's back there's something else going on this person's a mismatch they got some problem going on at home um, it's like something totally different so rarely am i brought a problem and that's actually the problem it's almost always something else and something far deeper and you just get there by asking questions mm -hmm. yeah the, the the power of inquiry because I think that um, when somebody's emotional and they got a big problem happening, they're just not thinking straight. And so for them to just sit down and be like, "Hey, hold on, pump the brakes, bro. Pump the brakes, brakes. What's going on here?" And they're like, "Oh, well, this person's driving me nuts." We're like, I don't. I mean, that doesn't seem like that big a deal. Like, what's actually happening? And you pick it apart, and it has something. It has almost nothing to do with that. There's something totally else, totally different happening. And it's pretty profound because not only do you get to solve that problem, but then Sherpa analogy again, they now have the tools to then stop. They hopefully do have the tools to stop and then assess themselves and realize like, oh, it's, this is actually not, this is not even a big deal. Like I was walking with Melissa this morning talking about something that bothered her um, with this interaction with another person. I'm like, well, why is that? Like, why is that getting you worked up? Well, she's a connector, creative, like, like relationships, everything. And she loves connecting people with other people and solving 
issues for solving problems for them. And this one person that felt like she, they burned her and then actually had to do with somebody else who she was connecting them with. Now it was going to cause some friction. And so we got to talk through that. We're like, Oh, well, it's, of course it bothered you because your relationships are everything. And now you feel like there's like a kind of a weirdness happening there. Like, why is that? Like all oh, this, this person's moral compass is a little different than yours. So what do we do next time? Next time, maybe I don't engage with that person. Right? Because our tendencies don't change. We're born with tendencies and they don't change. What, what we can change is our reaction, our pattern with those tendencies. So her tendencies to connect with people, anybody, right? And that pattern is that she's going to help whoever she can help. And instead it's like, wait, 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 hold on. Do they make it through the moral compass filter? They don't? Okay, I'll be friendly with them. We'll still be friends. But when they ask for help, you just, you, you don't need to help them. So there you're, you're kind of questioning to get to the objective reality of what's what the person is actually upset about or what the problem they actually think is. How are you getting, because it is like anybody I think who's, and I always go back to like personal training performance because human performance is like my world. Yeah. Um, nutrition, anybody who's worked with clients will say it, the hardest thing is like, almost any plan works. You can be an idiot personal trainer and get somebody in pretty good shape. Uh, you can be an idiot nutritionist and get somebody pretty ripped. It's just getting them to actually do it. So how is it a, do you find it to be a largely a belief shift that you have to get the person to have? Or like, how are you getting people to take the action once they realize, Oh, Peter's kind of right about this thing. Yeah. Um, I think that there's, there's not a whole lot that I have to get them to do as they go through the process, right? So like if it's a one-on-one -on -one coaching or group coaching, as you're going through the process, you start to see the fruit of it yourself. And when you see something working, it's like this virtuous cycle. It's like when you go to the gym, you go to the gym, you start to see results. What happens? You start eating better. I know I do. Cause I'm like, dude, I'm not going to, that was a lot of work. I'm not going to crap on that by eating this nasty thing, right? Like I'm not going to do that. So it's a virtuous cycle. It's like self-perpetuating. And so, um, this, this group that we launched this week, um, I had them take, um, their five voices before we started. And, uh, my buddy Sean was like, yeah, man, this thing was spot on. And one of the things that really kind of like, like cut me because it was so true was that I like making people feel stupid. I was like, oh, that's interesting. That's like pretty vulnerable for you to admit that. He goes, yeah, but the funny thing is, is that he had taken it two weeks prior. He's like, the funny thing is, is that I was in a couple of meetings and I literally caught myself just about to make somebody feel stupid. And he goes, and not only did I not do it, it made me think like, why do I do this? Like, Oh my gosh, this is a habit of his. This guy's in his mid 40s. He's run incredibly successful companies. He's a great leader, just now realizing that he does this, right? And so, to answer your question, it's like, I don't really need to get them to do anything. Their mind has to be open to the fact that they could be wrong and they can be better. They see the results and they absorb them. And then you just naturally start applying them, right? Because you're, you're just, just pattern recognition. So you read that, you're like, oh man, I make, I make people feel stupid. And then you see that you're about to do it. Even if you don't agree with it, you, you see you're about to do it, you're like, oh my gosh, that was right. Like, 
yeah, I make people feel stupid. Like for me, perceived incompetence, right? I feel myself start to short circuit. I'm like, this person's an idiot. I'm like, oh man, no, they're not actually. They're, they're guardian or they're whatever. And I start, and you start to see it like, oh my gosh, this actually works. I actually had a really incredibly productive conversation when it could have been terrible. And we just got a project completed when it could have went off the rails because I was about to eviscerate that person, right? Or Sean was about to make somebody feel stupid. And so I think that it's, as long as you're, I think the key is that as long as you're open, then you start to see these patterns and then you're like, oh, this actually works. I'm going to continue to apply it. It's back to that awareness thing that's just mind-blowing to me sometimes is, you know, just being aware that something exists, you're able to, you can even shift emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, I noticed for myself for a long time, I would just, just, I think historically in my life, probably put a lot of pressure on myself, which I don't think there's anything wrong with pressure, mm-hmm. um, but it can affect your performance when all you do is think I need to be doing this right now. I need to be doing this right now. Even when you're not supposed to be working, um, you're supposed to be sleeping or eating or whatever else. Um, and I remember thinking, feeling this kind of immense pressure every, you know, when the week is starting, you know, here we go, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And one day just going, I had a, something happen at work, like nightmare kind of deal was happening. And it was a big problem that had to be solved. Mm-hmm. And we were just getting ready to our grandparents, Giselle's grandparents were coming over. And I just remember going, Oh yeah, I guess I don't have to be stressed about this right now. Like the, actually me stressing just causes the problem to double. Yeah. And I literally just, just decided in that moment that I wasn't gonna be stressed about it. And I've since pulled from that and just, it's just the awareness of like, oh yeah, I guess this issue is happening right now, but that doesn't mean that I have to respond. Like you were saying, like you can, maybe we might have a similar reaction that's fairly genetic or whatever, but we can control our response. It is wild just, just being aware, but but it starts with the awareness. Like we have to actually know before we can make any sort of alteration. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's like your default mode of response and we've all got them. Um, I was, when I started this coaching, um, journey with this coach of mine, Mike intake call, he's like, man, what are you, what are you trying to achieve here? And I'm like, well, um, I want to get this monkey off my back. He's like, well, what is it? What's, what is, what are you struggling with? I'm like, I don't know. He goes, what do you mean? I go, this monkey's like, I've been carrying him for so long. It just feels like body weight and I just want to shed it. Right. And those are the things like you've got default, this default response, this default stress response to something you probably had no control over, but you're going to stew about it, which is going to do absolutely nothing. I mean, at best it's net zero, but mostly probably net negative. When you were, you suffered twice. Yeah. And so it's like, so I'm not going to do that anymore. And it's like, and the thing is, is like, that doesn't always work. You have to like continue to train yourself to be like, no. Steven doesn't worry about things he doesn't have any control over because it doesn't do him any good. I don't do that anymore. And just continuing to train yourself. There's a um, Craig Rochelle book, uh, Winning the War on Your Mind. It's like this so good, incredibly good. And the whole premise is that we have lies we tell ourselves and that's like a rut in your brain. 
and you want to, he says, you want to replace the lie with a tr this rut that's a lie with a trench of truth. And you do that with declarations. Um, and so I have four lies. I laminated this whole sheet. It's in my planner. And I read it on a regular basis. And that's the only way that you're going to replace the lie with a truth. And you do that through declarations, right? Um, and for you, it's just like, no, Stephen doesn't do that. I don't do that. I, I, don't, I don't stress out about those things because I, I cannot control them. I don't do that. So what do I do? And you can have like a 10-step process or whatever you need to be like, no. You know what I do? I make sure it's diffused. I make sure that so-and-so is um, uh, notified of it. And then I put it out of my mind because I, I literally can't do anything about it. Yeah. St Steven doesn't deal with problems he can't solve, right? And that's it. People will say that's easier said than done. And it is. But like anything meaningful is easier said than done. <laughs> and like... <sighs> Yeah, I think it's it, it's almost helpful to think about because habit building, I'm interested in habit building. And if we have this habit of reflexively stressing about work or, you know, whatever situation is happening, then that's just what we're going to default to. Mm -hmm. um, but in that in that specific example of, you know, work, you know, we've got this dinner, people are coming over super stressed. It's hard to tell somebody to control their like, you know, just, just don't think about it. You might think about it. It's kind of like with coaching, like people talk about internal and external cues. If you're trying to coach somebody to squat, it's harder for them to understand. If you tell them, think about using your glutes to like, think about using my, or think about using your quads. Like, what does that mean? My quads? Uh, like, but if you just tell them what to do with their knees mm -hmm. or tell them what to do with their hips, they can, they can visualize that. Um, and so in that example of dealing with stress, it's almost like, okay, maybe telling yourself not to think about it isn't the solution, but how would I behave right now if I wasn't stressed about this? I'd probably crack jokes with Grandpa Dave and I'd you know pour people some wine or whatever else and then just act in that manner. Yeah. Like for me, I found that to be a solution is just to literally do what I would do if I wasn't stressed about it. And I think I'm, I've just built a, a feedback loop of like, this is just what I do. Mountain of stress comes in and I do robot things. Yeah. <laughs> it's very good. Right. And then eventually that becomes habit and eventually it becomes natural. And eventually you don't have to remind yourself. And eventually you're the guy that doesn't stress out about things. Right. Um, I was at a dinner that we orchestrated in Spokane, Washington. And I'm talking like we flew in, um, we shipped in, I shouldn't flew in. We shipped in these huge ribeyes, bro. And they were getting smoked on this dude's grill, which you know who he is. I'm not going to mention who he is. And um, and then I flew in with a profound, uh, you know, just well-decorated other founder, buddy of mine who does production, also legend. All of this, It was incredible. I was like, how do I, I don't know how I even put this together. It was really cool. I had one job. One job was to bring the meat sticks to this party because there was a film crew there. It was a big deal. It's a promotional thing for Mission Meats. Yes. It was a big freaking deal. I mean, this is like months of preparation. Packed the meat sticks are in my suitcase and we're in uh, Moscow, Idaho. Like we're like an hour and a half drive away, you know. So we're there, get up, do our thing. We pack our stuff and we drive to Spokane and we pull into the driveway crews are already there recording and stuff. I forgot them. 
I freaking forgot them. And it took me about 20 minutes to get myself together because I'm, I'm like, people are talking to me. I'm not even hearing anything. So I'm like, I don't know what the heck I'm going to do. My buddy bails me out and he gets it figured out. But same thing though. I'm like, what would I be doing right now if this didn't happen? We laughing, having conversation, joking around with the film crew, joking around with our host that was, you know, smoking the meats there. And uh, I snapped out of it. But it took me like half an hour to just be like, dude, this is, we diffused it. Homeboy's taking care of it. And uh, just, you know, get your mind right. Uh, but that's habit, man. That's habit. And you don't like, you don't run races or become an incredible football player or become an incredible gymnast or entrepreneur by accident, right? It becomes a unconscious competence, but in order to get there, you got to get through the conscious competence part. And the conscious competence is consciously preparing and consciously becoming competent. And that's, that's hard work. Like that's the donkey work as our yoga teacher used to say, like, that's just like one foot in front of the other dude. Just keep going. This is the worst part of it. And eventually it's second nature and it takes a long time. That's the strain portion, but that's back to the awareness. If you, if you are aware that there's an end to stage three, it makes it a lot easier to endure because you're like, eventually this is going to be unconscious. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Got to get through it though. Yeah. That's where most people quit. Right. Is that, do you see that with some of the people you're working with that you're coaching? Which part? Do you see that they're, they have a hard time rectifying this idea that if, if what they're struggling with is a, a lack of poor habits, mm. um, I guess maybe you're dealing with people who have, you know, you're not dealing with people who are, um, have not already achieved a certain level of success. So they had to have had some good habits to get there. Yeah. Um, but clearly if they're willing to go through coaching, there's some problem that they're trying to solve. Yeah. Um, which generally sometimes can be solved by better habits. Mm -hmm. Um, always problems to solve. Uh, a friend of mine just two days ago, he's like, why are you coaching that guy? That guy's like, he doesn't need coaching. I'm like, we all need it. We all have blind spots. He actually told me that he was like actually really, really nervous. He's like, man, you're talking to my team behind closed doors. Like, I know I'm screwing something up. There's a guy who's like really probably one of the best, most accomplished business owners that I know. And um, so there's always something to learn. There are always habits to break. Um, but your question was, do you, do you find people... Do you find it's difficult for people to acknowledge? Is that what your question? Yeah. Do you, do you find that they're stuck in stage three um, and, uh, and ways to get them out? Yeah. I think that um, we're all stuck in stage three in some portion of our, in the way we're interacting with society and our business. Um, and some folks are harder than others. Um, I think it's back to your... Um, your ability to be confronted with things and be okay with it. I think that the, the clients that I have that are most difficult are the ones that just don't, they don't want to hear it. Like, what do you mean, man? I'm organized. I'm super organized. And I'm like, no, you're not dude. I've been around you. You're checking, you get every single notification on your phone. You're getting like, you're checking social media and you're, you're letting phone calls interrupt your day. Like, I know how you operate. Like I watch you, you're not, you're disorganized and you're, you're bouncing around and you, you, you don't stay focused. 
You don't have good habits. You don't have guardrails on your life. You let everybody interrupt your day. And those are the hardest, I think. Um, and I think that to deal with those folks and to answer your question more fully, I think the job of the coach and really of any leader is to know, um, and we should work through this tool today, is to know what, who, and when. And so um, the tool is called discretion and discipline. It's knowing what to communicate with who and when. And if you get even just one of those wrongs, you screw it all up. And so that person, that example of the person that is not open to being wrong in certain things, I got to know what exactly I need to communicate with him. What do I need to say? Who is him? And then when is the right time? Like if that person's super stressed or they're having a bad day and there's a big crisis, probably not the right time for me to be like, oh, and by the way, dude, you're pretty freaking disorganized and you're frazzled and you're running around like a chicken with your head cut off, by the way. So um, that's the difficulty, man. And I think that just knowing the timing, it helps you get through to that person. Somebody might be able to receive all the bad news in one session and be able to work on it. Another person might need six months. This is slightly off topic, but I just thought of it a couple times, a couple names you mentioned. I thought about this actually before you came over here. I've known you for a bit. Yeah. And I have heard more names come out of your mouth of people that you've associated with that would like, <laughs> if people were listening, they would be blown. Like every, they know these names. Um, and these are people that you just kind of rub shoulders with on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. If I didn't know you to be a super uh, humble, genuine dude, I'd be like, this guy's name dropping. Like <laughs> um, where does that come from? Like, how, yeah. how does this happen? Well, I mentioned earlier, I kind of don't know where it happens, man, or how it happens. I think that, you know, getting my five voices results back and knowing that I'm a pioneer connector. Um, and it's funny because Melissa is a connector creative. So like we both have really strong connector voices and I've always joked about like, man, we're the last, you know, we're the last people at church. We shut that place down. Like it's a bar and like we're the last people hanging out. Um, so relationships for us are like really, really important. Um, I don't, I cannot fully answer your question, Stephen, because it still boggles my mind, but for whatever reason, um, I meet people and we become friends. Like before I came over here, I'm talking to the co-founder of giant, like him and I are just chatting. He's walking to the airport. I don't really know him. I met him through one of John Maxwell's like right hand men, which is crazy. I met that dude through a friend of mine that just got introduced to me from another friend of mine and ended up meeting Bob Goff, the author. I don't know. It's really, really, really strange. The only thing that I could say that's maybe helpful for the listener is um, one thing I do know is that like I just genuinely care about people. And when I'm talking to them, like I, I'm, and this is back to the superpower of curiosity, I'm really intrigued. Like I'm intrigued by people and what they're working on. And I actually listen and I actually care. And then, um, the pioneer in me and the A to B connector in me is like, Oh, you talked about, yeah, you know what, dude, I know somebody that you could find really, really fascinating and I'll connect you. Like I connect people on group text all the time because I just love connecting people together. And I think that builds, it forges a deep relationship very quickly because I actually care. And because I care about this person and I care about the other person, now they get to meet and they're now I'm like that conduit and that's pretty cool. Um, 
and then um, just I think if you have a genuine curiosity and you actually care about people, then you start finding solutions for them. Um, and so I'm just naturally like making recommendations and if there's health related or business related or whatever. Um, and people remember that, man, you know, and for me back to doing things backwards, I don't do it from a, a place of what can I get out of them or, Oh, Steven, dude, he's got the connection and maybe I'll like butter him up and then he'll can, I just, I just don't think that way. I'm, I am a legit I'm not thinking that way. I'm just like, oh man, I really just want to be homies. Let's just hang out. And then if something comes out of it, cool. But um, I think that's it, man. And it's it's really, it's God's blessing on our life for whatever reason. Like this is part of our story and our purpose is that we're meant to be just connectors with with people that I have no business being friends with. <laughs> Makes it, it pays to be just a good human being and care. Like it just pays to care. Yeah. Last question I have for you. Yeah. I thought about, you know, I was like, what do I want to talk to Peter about? Obviously, we hit a lot of the heavy business coaching kind of things. Um, I've told you and Melissa a, a few times now that Giselle and I both, that your kids are just like, they're awesome. Um, and for the listener, like four kids and all of them in their own way are young adults. Mm. <laughs> they just behave like I specific memories of being, you know, sitting around us, sitting around the fire and, um, Windsor at the time was younger. Um, and just, I cracked some joke and she was the first person to laugh, mm. but it was a joke that you had to have been paying attention for the last 20 minutes. You had to have a lot of context. It wasn't like an adult humor joke, but it was a, like a higher level. You had to be really engaged in the conversation. And it's really common for, you know, 10, 12, 13, 14, 15 year olds to just, it's like, oh, the adults are talking. I don't want to engage. Yeah. Um, but your kids, all of them engage. And I just wonder what you guys have done. If you can isolate anything, you and Melissa and have set them up so well. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate that. Um, a lot of that's Melissa, dude. I, I always joke like I'm the counterbalance. Like I just screw up what she makes work <laughs> really well. So it just makes a good, good, even fit. Um, but, uh, I think there's a lot we did and a lot we didn't do. I think that, you know, these people, I mean, these kids, like human beings came out of the womb with their personalities and they're just happen to be freaking awesome kids, man. And I'm stoked to see the, like the young adults are turning into. And, um, I'm so curious to see what they turn into as far as like, just, they're going to be just incredible friends of ours. And I, I'm excited for that. Um, the one thing I would point to is that um I was a Florida boy living in Iowa for 12 years and all that means is that winters were brutal like I just couldn't take them and so we traveled every winter somewhere and then um fast forward several years we get an RV and we did 30,000 miles on the road and part of that and part of being a connector is almost not all of them but almost every stop was at a town where I knew somebody and so we would break bread with them, you know, park the rig in the driveway, sleep in the driveway, and then move on to the next place. And what was cool about that experience, Stephen, is that the kids and they're homeschooled, so they've had so much time around adults. That paired with we've always treated them like they are not stupid because they're not. And so at a very, very early age, we talk to them like they're intelligent human beings, which they are. 
And so they've got a perspective and a relationship with adults that most kids don't. We moved into our, the last rental before we, we bought this house. And um, there's an 87-year-old man. His name's Martin. And he walks over. It's like we're living there like a week. And I'd met him, you know, a couple of days after we moved in. And he like, you know, signals for me to come over. He's like, I got to talk to you. I said, oh, okay, what's going on? He's like, I talked to you about your kids. I was like, okay. I thought they like broke something because they're kind of rowdy. They're in the street making noise and breaking stuff all the time. And uh, I said, what's going on, man? And he's like, your kids, they, they look me in the eye. They ask me how I'm doing. And they listen for the answers. Not normal. And I'm like, yeah. He's like, it's pretty cool. I was like, yeah, it's pretty cool. I thought he was going to read me out for something. But I've heard that so many times from so many people. And I think it's like a result of us speaking to them like adults, paired with being around other adults, knowing how to have conversation. They were very often like the new, because every time we would land in a spot for a period of time, like we stayed, you know, we stayed in Arizona for three months and San Diego for a month. And we stayed in Dana Point a lot and um, stayed in Florida. We'd always check into a, into a church, you know, like for the, that would be our church for the month we were there or whatever. And so they were frequently the new kids, and they frequently didn't know anybody. And either you're going to be very lonely, or you're going to learn how to make friends. And so they just learned how to make friends everywhere, and you can only do that by being comfortable with who you are, comfortable in your own skin, comfortable looking people in the eye and asking how they're doing, um, and um, and forging relationships like that. So I think if I could point to anything that we did, it's that. And they just know, like, they just, you can just, dude, you can drop those kids in any scenario and they're going to go play ball. They're going to do it. And they're not all extroverts, you know, like Windsor in particular, she's introverted, but she just had to do it. And so she learned how to do it. And, um, I think it really, it formed them, man. And I was just joking with a friend the other day. I'm like, I don't really care if they learn anything in school. And she's like, what do you mean? I'm like, you could learn anything in a weekend. Right, like you're not going to be an engineer or a doctor, and I get that, and so don't send Stephen hate mail or me. But you can learn most anything. You can be the top five percent of anything pretty quick. You don't need a whole year of schooling for that crap. You don't need four years of high school for that. But what you can't learn is how to be a good human being. You can't learn how to be confident, look people in the eye, and like make relationship and um, conversation and small talk, and like that's hard. So if I can teach you how to do that, you can thrive in any circumstance. You can learn anything on your own time and follow your own dreams and passions and purpose for your life. Um, that's not nearly as hard as like learning how to like interact with society and communicate effectively. If I can teach you that, then you'll, you'll thrive in whatever you end up, you know, dreams you're following. They'll be name dropping in 20 or 30 years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and then they'll be doing that. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, man, this has been killer. Good. good. Thanks for having me, bro. Thanks for coming on. It's good. Awesome.